Hi everyone. Um, thanks for joining the CEO class, and I'm Siron from Hong Kong, and I'm the founder of CEO class. And as you guys may know, a uh, CEO class is um for impact initiative. And during COVID, we see that there's uh, a lot of challenges, but at the same time, we see the opportunities. We can connect more with people from different countries. And also, it is a great time for us to rethink about our personal goals and growth. So, in every CEO class sessions, we invite um, leaders around the world and share about their stories. And today, uh, it's glad that we have Joe join us to share his story. And yeah, hi Joe, can you sh um, introduce a bit yourself? Hi, of course I can. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's a real, uh, real pleasure to be here. I'm talking to you from uh, from Singapore. I'm originally mm. British, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later. But I've, I've kind of spent the last ten or more years building various companies, um, both consultancies, startups, and now uh, corporate ventures. Mm -hmm. This this sounds is a really really cool industry because all the things startup, uh, investment, these kind of things. Can you share more about your your journey? like how you start to to discount do these kind of things as i know you you did have uh found a few ventures and now you are working on a venture builder yeah i mean it it sounds a lot cooler than it is <laughs> i suspect um there's especially at the moment i think there's a real uh, real fire around entrepreneurship all mm -hmm. around the world um and around startups and around investments and so on um and and for someone like me i love it because I feel like I, I'm paid to do my hobby, right? Uh, this is, uh, and a lot of my colleagues, I think are the same. These are things that we think about and do about in our spare time anyway. And most of us have tripped and fallen and discovered we can get paid for it. Uh, and what a what a lucky way to live our lives. Um, I, th I sort of mentioned there that a lot of people, I think trip and fall into this sort of world. Um, mm. And I would, I would describe myself as a, um, only recently discovering that I'm something of an entrepreneur. Uh, I've never thought of myself as entrepreneurial, really, through most mm. of my career, most of my life, uh, just was working and just happened to be working in small companies. Uh, and we happened to be building stuff that was maybe new to world. Um, and we happened to be experimenting with new business models. But that was just we were doing it because we couldn't do it any other way. Mm. Um, and kind of more recently, uh, I've discovered that, yeah, I suppose maybe that was entrepreneurship, actually. Maybe it was. And maybe maybe some of these um some of these experiences that you have where at the time you think, oh, I'm just making it up. I'm just blindly stumbling through uh, trying to trying to make a few dollars and trying to make the business work. Turns out that is very much the process of entrepreneurship and that actually some of those things are skills rather than accidents. Um, so so to answer your direct question, I've taken sort of a, a strange course mm. uh, through my career in lots of ways. I um, sort of started off just trying to make a few a few pounds here and there on, on eBay back in the day and uh, like small little businesses I could build for my parents' house when I was a teenager. Um, quite quickly realized that better get an education, mm. better do something properly grown up, you know? So um, I, uh, I ran away to Australia and I, I had my first sort of professional job over in Australia, was lucky enough to join a, a very, very small brand strategy and growth um, agency. It's about the third employee um, but we landed some really big clients. So we were working with Coca-Cola on their entire mm. portfolio across across Australia and New Zealand. And we worked with some of the big banks down there and some of the insurance companies. So you get this amazing schooling mm. from these incredible global corporations on how to think about marketing, how to think about strategy, how to think about growth, how to think about innovation and new products. Mm. Um, long story short, I kind of uh, moved back to the UK to join a startup with a uh, uh, a guy I knew from university and some of his colleagues from uh, from Cadbury's, which was really good fun. We didn't succeed, um, but it was a good experience and, and thereby tripped and fell. Literally in the same office building mm. was an innovation consulting firm. And uh, and when I found out what they did, they were called Fahrenheit 212. And when I found out what they did, it just blew my mind that people could be paid to do that. It was like my favorite part of my job up, uh... up to that point, but I only got to do it for a week or two every year. I can do this every day and do it every week. And so we built that out. Um, more recently, about three years ago, in fact, three years ago tomorrow, we moved to Singapore because we kind of saw this, um, the, the crux of innovation and the crux of technology and the crux of entrepreneurship shifting from West to East. 
Mm. Um, and I really wanted to be in the heart of that, right? And of course, it was 2019, so you come to Southeast mm. Asia to travel the world, and we had <laughs> six months of that, yeah. and we've been locked indoors the last couple of years. Uh, and then, so a couple of years ago, I joined um, a company called Rainmaking, which I'm sure we'll go into a bit later. So uh, really kind of history firm. It's got a long track record building startups mm. and accelerating the growth of other startups. And so I've taken on a commercial role then with the team here in Singapore, which is fabulous. Yeah, that's, that sounds really cool. But but you you were adopted with um, startup and also you you join some startup as well. So what is the I would say what is the most challenging things in the in the startup industry for you? And there's a, there's a lot, and uh, I think there's a lot of really challenging things about the startup industry mm. that we celebrate that we shouldn't celebrate. There's a, you know, people call it hustle porn, right? Mm. Or like startup porn, this, this idea that you're not really doing a startup unless you're working 20 hours a day. Mm. Um, and that you're not really a good salesman for your startup unless you're like not taking no for an answer and you're a total bastard to everyone that you try to sell to. Yeah. Um, and, and that you're not a real startup unless you're raising massive seed investment rounds, 10, 15, $20 million seed investment rounds. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of those kind of stereotypes and assumptions, they can, they can be a, a gravitational pull, right? They can suck you in. Mm. They can lead you to believe that that really is true, to, to be an entrepreneur, to work with startups, to work in this world, for, for me to be valuable, I have to behave like that. Um, and so certainly when I was first in this world, I was maybe a little bit susceptible to that um, and too susceptible of falling into those traps. Uh, I like to think in recent years, I've been able to, to, in fact, COVID in many ways allows you to step back from that a little bit because you can't be quite so intense all the time. You can't uh, refuse to leave the room until somebody agrees to the sale. You can't do any of that sort of stuff. So it's just brought a bit, mm -hmm. of, bit of balance back. But for sure, uh, I think in any entrepreneurial world, you are living and dying by the success of the company that you're actually working in, right? Like, like a couple yeah. of months from now, if we don't succeed, we can't pay the bills. Uh, and that's a big problem. So the, 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 um, the instinct to want to work really hard is really high. Mm. The problem is if you're, if you're in a startup, you're really in the business of breakthroughs, right? If you're in the business of breakthroughs and you're working 80 hours a week, you haven't got the headspace for breakthroughs. You're just churning along and the stuff that your brain can handle on a couple of hours sleep every day. And so, you know, you, I think really the most transformational entrepreneurs are the ones who create environments in which they can work very intensively in certain periods of time and that they can also be able to step back from that problem and give themselves space to think and space to reflect and, and new sources of stimulus. And that's something that I struggle with a lot is, is, is keeping that balance. And then maybe the second thing that I, is um, potentially familiar to a lot of people is uh, imposter syndrome, mm. right? The idea that um, when you're surrounded, we all want to surround ourselves with really accomplished, uh, intelligent, interesting yeah. people, right? Because that's what makes life vibrant and exciting and mm. rewarding. And when you do that, inevitably, you feel like, oh, or at least I feel like I'm the outlier. Like I'm the one who shouldn't be in that room. Uh, mm. Like accidentally, they've allowed me in. Uh, that was a mistake <laughs> on their part, wasn't it? Uh, but I wonder when they're going to catch on. When when they're going to realise that I'm a fraud and that I actually don't know what I do. And again, I think that's especially true in entrepreneurship, and I think it's especially true in knowledge industries, where it's really hard to point to a, a functional skill mm. that one has. I, I don't have any skills at all. I can't point to any functional skills that I have. Um, I, just happened to have picked up some experience and some frameworks and stuff through the course of like luck and a couple of years. Um, and so when you don't have those hard skills to fall back on and you're in a room full of other really talented people, all of the people in that room have the same feeling, right? And so again, that's yeah. something that's, that's, I think, a constant struggle for people in this industry. But, but so what, what do you think, like, what is the most important or, or, what makes a, a startup successful? Like, as there is so many things we they need to take care about, like their business model, how they can present their things, how they can pitch the investors, also the team, there can be a lot of conflicts. So from your experience, 
what what you think is the most important or what is elements like make them okay this one can be successful or this one higher chance they they will fail uh it's a really unhelpful answer <laughs> in some ways but i think we we radically overestimate the mm. impact of um things that we can control and we radically underestimate the impact of things we can't control mm. um, and and so i think we really uh, underestimate the impact of luck and timing in particular mm. um and now luck we can't control just so, sometimes it, it the the coin flips and it lands this way or that way and mm. there's nothing you can do about that timing you can do something about um and really uh like a lot of really adept entrepreneurs, I think they recognize when's the right time to go into the market and when's the right time to hold that hold that back for now. Mm. And actually when is the market already gone and it's too late. Um, for me, a bit of a red flag if I talk to an entrepreneur uh, is if they talk about previous businesses and they say, uh, the idea was amazing, the business was fabulous and it would have succeeded, we were just too early. And they say that as if, uh, as if they've not learned anything from that lesson. It's a mm. fundamentally important thing. Timing is, is extraordinarily important uh, mm. for when, um, again, you look at the social networking, right? We're all familiar with, yeah. um, with all the social networks. Why is it that MySpace and Bebo and all these others, they're actually fabulous products, fabulous businesses. They were just a little bit too early and they ran out of momentum, whereas Facebook happened to hit it exactly the right time. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a couple and then the, one, the ones that you can control that, you know, there's plenty to read about that. I read any VC and they'll, they'll give you better analysis than me, but um, like customer problem. If you're mm. solving a really meaningful customer problem and you've got a good team around you um, and you've got the timing right, you then only kind of need the luck, right? Mm. Um, and some good execution to get by. I'm simplifying it a lot. Or you only need the luck <laughs> in a bit of execution. It's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, but but you've got a really solid base. Yeah, that's true. So um, because I I think for for our audience maybe they also think about like they can have an idea, start their own business, um, try to step in the the startup industry. So um, what is your your advice or views on like so what is their should be their first step? Like they do, they should take some class, or they should find a co-founder first, or they should validate their ideas by doing some prototyping, something like that. So, what is your view? It's a tricky thing, right? It's a tricky mm. one though, because I think that path is a little different for everyone, depending on um, who they are, how well mm. they know themselves, and and what the scale of their ambition and where they are. Um, I think a couple of things that are really easy to do and therefore mm. everyone should just do them uh, sort of no matter what is listen and read everything you possibly can by mm. all sorts of different types of entrepreneur right mm. um it's easy in the days of twitter to to kind of become acolytes or followers of one or two of a peter Thiel or an elon musk or whatever and, and end up being like a disciple of their way of thinking about um mm. building startups and i think that's a mistake um personally because I think every entrepreneur actually has their own style. Like they're like a, a sports person or a, or a musician that you mm. have your own unique style. And the faster you find that and you find the model that works for you, then the more successful you're going to be and, and the more fulfilling your life is going to be. Um, and so diversity is how you, how you do that. I want to read some Teal and I want to read some Musk and some Ben Horowitz and some Scott Galloway. And I want to read all of these, these, um, these different entrepreneurs and, and pick up lessons from each of them. So read, 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 listen, 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 podcasts. So, an extraordinary source of insight actually mm. that's one two is just start doing some stuff uh, you know um you can stand up a, a drop shipping business on mm. uh, alibaba or on uh, ebay or on amazon or any of these things you can set it up pretty much overnight um and you're unlikely to make a ton of money doing it but it's also unlikely to cost you a ton of money doing it yeah and there's just some really fundamental like super basic skills make your mistakes in that environment really early on and just get the get the basics done and, and start understanding how business works. Um, there's another good start. And then I'd say, um, start thinking, of, there's that Venn diagram, right? Of mm. um, 
things I want to do, things that the world needs and things I can make money from. Mm. And, and your startup really has to, like the, the sector that you're working in really has to hit all three of those because it will be really hard work and you will put a lot of personal risk um, on the line doing it. Um, and chances are like most people's first startup is not a big success, right? So chances are it's going to be a hard path at some mm. point in that journey. So it really matters that you care about what you're doing um, and you believe it's important for the world. So I think also the more that people can um, find opportunities to understand themselves and what really matters to them and what actually doesn't matter to them, that's, uh, this yeah. is a mistake I made in my life, right? I, I prioritized yeah. what everybody else thought was really high status and really cool. And I chased that for a little while and I was miserable. Uh, mm. The sooner you can work out what really matters to you, I think the, the, the faster you can then arrive at, okay, this is the company that I want to build and this is why I'm committed to doing it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that I totally agree. It is very important to find your passions, find what, what really is suitable for your, for your career. It is always no uh, uh, 100% right answer. You must follow this path, something like that. And, and actually, you, you mentioned about like now you are in Singapore and also you work in different countries as well. So um, how's the experience? Because I, I think for, for some people, they will quite worry about that, like they need to go to other foreign countries, they need to change their whole lifestyle. There may be a lot of concern or uncertainty for them. So for how's for you? Is it something difficult or you feel more excited of this experience? Um, I'll go backwards to go forwards. Uh, so I grew up in, um, in England. Mm. Uh, in a sort of suburban town just outside London. And, mm -hmm. and everybody there looked like me, sounded like me, behaved like mm -hmm. me. Their parents voted, I'm sure, all the same yeah. way. Like all of, all of these things, it was just kind of identical people. And so I didn't like that particularly. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very comfortable place to live, but I didn't like it very much. So I've sort of spent quite a lot of my life um, mm -hmm. trying to experience different ways right. of life the university I chose was purposefully at the opposite end of the country so that it was mm. far away. Um, and I then moved to Australia because it was far away and then came to Singapore because it was different. And we've always sought out kind of experiences and lives that are different. And, but, but I'm very privileged in being able to do that. Right. That's a, it's not an opportunity that everybody, everybody gets, um, recognize that. There's a really interesting piece of analysis that we did, um, the company, I worked at in London for a long time called Fahrenheit 212. We did a, a piece of analysis on the very best innovators that mm. we have in our team over the course of 10 years, like the very best ones. Let's look into their background and mm. see if we can identify common themes across these people um, to help us then select better ones mm. in the future, right? Yeah. And, and we found three things. One was um, like uh, politically active because um, mm. they wanted to make the world a better place in some way and and what sort of politics they were mm, they were yeah. active in was different but they cared about that um the the second thing was uh, just a uh, high uh, intelligence right just high basic intelligence but the third thing was that they had all uh, lived in a different culture in some way or came mm. from an environment that had given them exposures to another culture um and again that's not possible for everyone but there's all sorts of ways you can experience a different culture without needing to go overseas. Right? So you can move to a different city within the country in which you live, or you can purposefully live in a part of town that has a different community inside mm. it, expose yourself to different communities, or you can purposefully seek out um, kind of uh, music or art or books or whatever it is that come from a totally different perspective on the world yourself. Mm. I think the more that, the more that we do that, the more we're able not just to kind of understand a few different cultures and that's really important but it's almost like you learn how to learn languages mm. but metaphorically right it's like you learn how to learn cultures and you learn how to empathize with people from different backgrounds um i'm very bad at that but uh but for sure living in these different places and, and kind of seeking that out has made me a little bit less bad at it mm. yeah there's this really really interesting observation, I think. And so, like now we, um, at least in Hong Kong, uh, we are still quite suffering from from the COVID, and and I can see that is quite a big 
uh, impact to no matter in the in the business sectors or all the things. So how how you see the the challenges or the the futures of in post pandemic, like maybe especially in in the startup sector. Yeah, um, like this is really hard because it's mm. another thing we have no control over that has a lot of impact on us. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that and that's always a tough a tough place to be, right? For for all of us for the last couple of years, it's like a strange yeah. bonding experience that we've all had in, in some strange way. Um, like. It, I think there's a danger for people, particularly people early in their career. Actually, there's a danger. Mm. Um, and the danger for people early in their career is the benefit for people later in their career. And, and the benefit for people is post pandemic, there is a lot more flexibility now around where you work, how you work, when you work. Mm. And so if you are a 40 something year old executive with three kids and a dog and a couple of cars and a very comfortable salary or a successful business, you can go and live outside the city, right? You can have some space, yeah. you can be in the countryside, whatever. Um, and it's in, in many countries and that's very comfortable and that's fine for them. Early in your career, uh, I think you want to be as close as you possibly can, like physically close to people with as much experience as you can find, mm. right? So like, I would, um, heartily recommend anyone that their first job, they, the best first job you can have is working directly for someone who has at least 20 years more experience than you do and being like in and around their office every single day because mm. you pick up so much just by being around, right? You can learn mm. things through classes and that's really important. And mentors can teach you things over time. That's also really important. You can learn by reading and, and so on, but so much of what we learn about how to be, uh, good business people, how to be good people, how to be good teammates and colleagues, all of that relies on, I think, just absorbing it like a sponge. Mm. Um, and so the temptation then, I think, for, for lots of uh, lots of young people coming out of the pandemic is, this is great, now I can work remotely. Your digital mm. nomad lifestyle, that's fabulous. What an advantage, having gone through these two or three years of yeah. you know, really painful restriction, let me go and lean into this new way of life. And some mm. people will really thrive at that. Um, but I think a lot of people will miss out on really foundational formative experience that if you mm. invest in yourself for a couple of years by being physically close to, um, to people, I think that's, I think that's worth doing. Um, I think there's another risk, which is that, um, for people at a very specific age, uh, mm. let's say, let's say 18, when the 18, 19, when the pandemic struck you you missed out on two really important years of socializing mm. and and getting yeah. stuff wrong in relationships as well right um and i have no idea how to solve that but i think it might mm. be like time to make up for some lost time or time to um time to be more purposeful and think about or oh, how am i gonna fill in those gaps because i know i have those gaps now mm. where anybody else might have got to college or they spend a couple of years living in the center of the city and you make a ton of mistakes and a bunch of friends and you have a great time and and so on like how can you purposefully fill that in i think that's another um another risk for people mm. but i have no idea how to solve <laughs> but that's really true like i i always i always talk with the the students and and they still have class but in an online class actually they learn nothing they can't practice, they can't really interact with the teachers. So they just spend two years, they they have, they go to like school, but actually they, they don't earn a lot through their school life. And so I, so for, especially for, for the young people, like maybe they're in their early career. So what do you think, how they can better prepare themselves? Like they should, some skills are very important or some, some mindset they need to prepare themselves. So what do you think, how they can prepare themselves better to, to face the future challenges? That's a hell of a question. That's <laughs> a hell of a question. It's a very good one. Um, I don't, I don't really, I, I don't know the answer actually. I don't know. Cause I think that's, that's like mm. hard things are really hard. Um, there's there's maybe one mindset that I think helps um, that you can sort of borrow from a startup environment, I suppose, which is um, early stage companies, right? In the very first six months of their life, mm -hmm. um, 
the really successful ones prioritize learning over everything else. Mm. So they say it doesn't really matter if I'm not generating a ton of revenue right now. And it doesn't matter if the things that I'm doing, the experiments that I'm running are not scalable. Like Brian mm. Chesney from Airbnb talks about this all the time, like specifically do things that are not scalable because mm. that's how you maximize your learning. It's so a really good entrepreneurs at the like, very earliest stage, they prioritize understanding the markets and learning and learning and learning about the customer over everything else. And I, I think you can apply the same thinking to your own career, which is to say mm. um, the, the more intensively you think about your job as being learning, the more it helps you to focus on the things that will drive long-term value for yourself. Right. If you spend two or three years really intensively just seeking learning from every single avenue you possibly can, um, mm. then you probably earn less today because you're focusing on doing that rather than on working or on taking a job that pays higher or something like that. But the dividends are much greater later on. Um, so that's kind of one part is then the mindset is how can I maximize in this time what I learn in the next year? How do I maximize what I learn? Mm. The second piece then I think is um, uh, an idea that uh, uh, a good friend taught me, which is you can actually learn a ton off almost everyone, right? Like you, your, your mentors don't have to be your mentors. In, in some ways, your friends are your mentors as well. And mm -hmm. uh, the person that you talk to in the, in the restaurant and cafe or the Uber driver or like whoever it is, yeah. you can actually learn an awful lot of, of people in every, in every walk of life if you're curious and if you go and ask them and if you have that learning mindset. Mm. Um, and so when you put those two things together, which is this, this like intensive drive towards learning and the second, the, um, the curiosity, I suppose, mm. like set a fire inside yourself and force yourself to go and talk to people you wouldn't otherwise talk to and force yourself to try and seek learnings out of people. Then, then that might be one way. Um, mm to kind of solve the challenge, but I have no idea. That could, uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing. Yeah, but the, I think it, it really a really good, I think good advice for them to to start to learn something. I think sometimes we, we always stuck in our, our comfort zone and, and don't want to step out. So um, for the audience, if you guys have any questions, anything you, are, you want to ask, just feel free to put in the chat or in a Q&A, then we will take some to, to try to answer it. And at the same time, actually, I collect some questions before this session starts. And, and here is some from the audience. And one question I, I would save is, how to be a great leaders with great achievements? I think this question is, I, I will rephrase it like, so how when when you start to be in a leadership role or a management role, how you manage it or how you how you start to learn being a management? Um, very badly is the answer, <laughs> right? Very badly. And I think um, I hadn't really come across like a great manager. Um, mm -hmm. I come across great people and great um, great colleagues every single step of my career mm. and, and great mentors as well in some ways, but a really genuinely great manager probably until I was uh, in my middle, late twenties. Um, because there actually aren't very many like really good mm. managers. Right. And, and I would distinguish that a little bit from a leader um, mm. as well. So managers, like if you read Kim Scott, um, he's the ra writer of Radical Candor and you know, quite a famous um, executive from Google. Uh, that's incredible management, right? The day-to-day -day mm. maximization of someone's potential, I think, is um, is something I'm I'm pretty poor at, actually. Um, and and always seeking to get better, but not very good at it. Leadership, I think, is a little bit different. Um, mm. In the leadership is um, about, uh, or at least some styles of leadership are about a inspiring excitement around a vision. Um, and there, it is at least as much about your own conviction in that vision and therefore the data points that you have to back it up as it is about mm. anything else, right? So so my personal style of leadership is data-driven, 
right? Because I think it's very difficult mm. to not, if you just follow the data again and again and again, it's quite difficult not to not to land on um, sort of possibilities that are quite exciting. It's one thing. Mm. Um, and then the second thing is the visibly demonstrating the values that you hold to be important in reaching that vision, right? And so if you have these two things together, what you have is a exciting place that we want to get to and mm -hmm. a fulfilling journey to get there, right? So in our company, um, we we try to prioritize entrepreneurialism, uh, impact mm -hmm. and kindness, like above all else, because mm -hmm. the work that we're doing is quite hard a lot of the time. Uh, and it's uh, very important that everything that we do is super, super impactful. But if you only focus on being impactful and entrepreneurial, you can you can be a bit of a bastard, right? It's actually kind of this really, really important balance. As soon as a leader, mm. as soon as you fail on one of those things, mm. or as soon as you allow someone else to get away with one of those things, just because they're good at their job, for example, mm. then you're in real trouble, right? And I think that's a, like, that's a, a lesson I've learned through painful experience as a leader. It's, um, it's that. So I think there's lots of different styles, um, mm. management different from leadership, but uh, my personal take would be if you can inspire people around a vision of the future and what could possibly be, and you mm. can genuinely promise them a journey that's fulfilling along the way, then I think that's a large amount of the job already done. Mm. Yeah. So um, another question. So what is the most important thing that you have learned from someone you met randomly? And how did you use that new knowledge in what you do or what you did? That's a great question. That's a great question. Probably my wife, mm -hmm. actually, the very first time I met her. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a silly lesson to learn, but the lesson is uh, <laughs> don't judge a book by its cover. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in that my wife is a like, uh, very beautiful, quite small, quite quiet Scottish woman. Mm -hmm. um, and you judge a book by its cover and you think probably therefore, uh, or I was thinking in my head, like very beautiful, probably not all that uh, outgoing and adventurous. Um, and I, so I therefore like talked and talked and talked about myself for hours and hours uh, on our very first day, first time we met. And then after a couple of hours, I discovered that actually she'd been a teacher in Zambia um, for a number of years. And she'd like also taken herself off to Australia. And she was, you know, one of the, one of the very few people in her family who'd left the uh, the village that she's from in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And she'd actually like had this extraordinary um, journey through life that was really interesting. Um, and that's a really meaningful moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because not only in that moment do you go like, wow, uh, you have to stop uh, making assumptions about people. You have to start asking them properly listening, like genuine listening. Uh, but also I, I just felt I have to know more about this woman and, and now we're married. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was quite an impactful um, like random meeting, I would say. Yeah, that's cool. So another question is, um, so you mentioned creating a set of frameworks that have led to your success. So how do you decide whether to follow the data or your intuition? I think if the data exists and you trust it, um, mm -hmm. No, actually, let, let me let me rephrase that. It all depends on the question that you ask of the data mm -hmm. or the intuition, right? So the um, if the if you have a question that is answerable by data, and you have the data to hand, then you should generally trust the data, like ninety nine point nine times out of hundred. And frankly, I'm willing to be wrong the one percent of the time, because ninety nine percent of the time I'm right um, to do that. Um, the problem with data, though, is that it always looks like it can answer the question, right? And so really, I think the, the trick is to understand a couple of things. One, how easy it is to manipulate data and to, to fall into confirmation bias effectively, mm -hmm. and therefore to set out your parameters for data before you ask the question. So if you're saying, uh, is this a big market for me to go into, right? Mm. Uh, intuition might tell you yes, but probably you can find data that's going to tell you about that. Set your threshold first, 
to say, mm. for this to be a big market, I need to see a number bigger than $10 billion, uh, for example. Then go find your data. And now you found the data and it's eight and a half. Resist the urge to say, well, it's nearly, it's nearly big enough because there's a reason why you yeah. have, the, have the 10 there, right? Um, and so the question that you ask is really important and the thresholds that you set for the data are also really important. Um, I think the, the third thing then to say is that sometimes I think we mistake data for intuition because it's not quantitative. Mm. So qualitative data, especially in, in startups and, and early stage companies is almost more valuable than quantitative data. Um, but it can be harder to understand. It can be harder to interrogate the veracity of that information. And so it, mm. it can, uh, we can regard it as subjective. Um, and so I think one of the most important skills, like if, if, if someone was going to invest in a, uh, a Swiss army knife mm. skill, that I think is just valuable to almost every uh, um, every career. It is customer research, customer yeah. insight, and therefore understanding what does good qualitative data look like, right? What does good qualitative analysis look like? How can I actually ask a question in such a way that I'm going to receive really good qualitative data? And then the same is true for quantitative. Mm -hmm. Once you can do that, then actually you can start to rely on on data of all kinds for a large proportion of decisions that you have to make. And, and your intuition builds up and that helps you to ask the right questions, set the right thresholds. But the more you can be data-driven about almost everything, I think I think the better. Mm. It's, um, that's not the same if you then need to make a creative leap, right? And, uh, and that's a story for another day. Yeah, that's good. And another one, um, how to nurture mindset to learn and stay curious on others when sometimes you feel you can't learn anything from them um i think the slightly harsh uh question i might ask back is do you really think there's nothing you can learn from anyone so you you may not respect their skills right and and i've certainly fallen into this trap before i've said like i don't think you're good at your job and therefore there's nothing i can learn from you um, and discount them entirely. But fundamentally, people are really complicated um, and everyone has a lot of depth and everyone has multiple sides. And so even if they can't teach you how to be better at coding or how to how to do your times tables or uh, you know, how to be a better leader or anything like that, there's almost always some things that you can learn. Um, yeah. So the, I think that's a really important starting point. And I know that's not the question, but the starting point, I think really ought to be even people that you don't like uh, or you don't respect, like there's something that you can probably learn from your interaction with them. And then the second thing, to be frank, is if that's proving to be not the case or you actually get to a point where you feel that you've uh, extracted maximum learning from them, then deprioritize the learning that you seek from them and seek it from somewhere else. Um, and sometimes that's a good signal that it's time to change job as well. If that person is your boss or, or the colleague that you work most of the day to day, and actually you feel your learning curve starting to plateau off. There's nothing more I can learn from this person. That's, uh, that's probably a sign that it's already too late. Mm. And then it's time to go to the next thing and plan to accelerate that learning curve off again. Mm. Yeah. That's just my take though. I think that's probably harsher. I probably have um, friends and colleagues who mm. give a much more nuanced answer to that. So, uh, so you know, <laughs> dilute down my answer yeah. maybe a little bit. Okay. So, yep, and other one, if you are scaling your startup, so what kind of candidate will be top of your list? And would you value company culture, fit over qualifications or skills in selecting candidates to join your scale up? That's another really good question. Um, I think you can split it a little bit. I might split it into uh, non-negotiables and then differentiators. Mm. Right. So, so generally, uh, culture is an extremely important part of a business, um, of any business. Um, in more recent times, I think is understood to be that, but still sometimes is it, it's easy to think we have a great culture and we don't actually have one. Mm. Uh, for example, or it's easy to think we have a strong culture and actually it's a weak culture. But especially when you're scaling, um, 
But when you're really small, every individual that you bring into a team, let's say you're a team of six people, you bring one person in, the percentage of that culture that that new person is bringing in is, mm. is quite high, right? They're bringing in 13% or something like that of the, um, of the culture. So they're going to actually influence that, that culture. And therefore, when you're bringing in people into early stage startups, you need to be looking, I think, for cultural addition. So what are they bringing to this group that is new and improves our culture? Um, mm. Once you start to scale, uh, those things are probably already set, both the good things and the bad things in your culture are probably already set, at least in, in some degree. And therefore, I would put a non-negotiable being, uh, at very least, a cultural fit, right? That regardless of skill, if the mindset isn't right, if they're not going to be able to adapt to the environment that that scale up is now operating in, mm. then just just stop. doesn't matter how good they are at their job um, because it's just never going to work. And then your differentiators are your skills and your experience and those sort of things. And again, I think a lot of scale-ups, um, some entrepreneurs you talk to, they, they reflect on previous startups by saying, the mistake I made was that I valued the logo on the CV uh, mm -hmm. over a really diligent uh, understanding of that candidate skills. And they also say, the problem was I, as the CEO or the founder, was so used to uh, hiring everyone into all mm. the key positions that when I was then confronted with an expert who knew a lot more of, than me about their particular specialism, mm. it was really difficult for me to actually hire them because I didn't know whether they were good or bad. Uh, and so I think that's a that's another sort of differentiator to think about there is, is this a, if this is a super technical position, mm. then I think that needs to be a, a, a different sort of hire to someone who is fulfilling a role that I might have already played in the, in the business myself, for example. And therefore the, the things that you might look for are different. Mm. It's tricky. I think it varies a lot from, from sort of startup, startup and scale up to scale up. And it certainly differs if the way that you're scaling is hiring in new markets. Um, you know, we do a lot of expansion work, helping startups mm. move into new, into new markets, new international markets. Yeah. And there, um, you know, there's an amazing, uh, uh, book about the Netflix culture called no rules rules. And, um, uh, they released the first edition of it. Everybody read it. This is amazing. Fabulous. Can apply this to my business. Great, great, great. Uh, and then they released the second edition a few months later with a final chapter in the back that just said, none of this applies in Japan. So if you're doing any of this in Japan, it's all completely different. Sorry. We didn't uh, mention that in the first edition and, and it's, it's a, uh, hyperbole, right. But I think it's true in lots of different countries as well. Yeah. That's really true. So yeah, and other questions. So um, so um, he he or she is in um the early twenties and very hard to figure out what is um the passion. And since there are many different kind of interests, but do you think it is important to have passion to achieve what kind of succeed in the career? And how does that passion really at that? That's a great question. Uh, and it's something that I really struggled with early in my career as well, actually, was um, so many different things that I'm interested in. And I don't really know if any of them mm. are something I can get like passionate with a capital P about. Um, and I don't know which of them to choose. And it just You end up in this horrible paralysis where you're just not sure what to do. You're looking for the perfect thing. Um, and of course, I think a couple of things to treat. One, uh, you just have to start doing. You have to start doing something. Mm. Pick one, um, and you can pick it based on gut instinct, and you can pick it based on opportunism, whatever comes up. Just pick one, um, and then be really, really self-reflective, right? Once you've then picked that one, uh, at least this is this is the mistake I made. I wasn't self-reflective enough. I, I spent three or four years doing something that I was all right at, but I wasn't. I didn't love it, right? uh, or at least I didn't love all of it. Um, yeah. And so I spent too long doing it. So that's one thing um, is, is just to start doing and then let that experience and the process of self-reflection, let that then guide you, right? The, the hardest thing is to start. The second thing is um, there's a uh, <clears throat> sort of academic called Scott Galloway um, that some might be familiar with. He's a NYU Stern professor of marketing. And um, his advice always is uh, forget 
the thing that you're passionate about like ignore that mm. that's what rich people tell you when they're already rich because they're getting <laughs> to do the thing that they're passionate about it's like ignore that go do the thing that you're really good at right and and often you find that the thing that you're really good at turns into the passion because it actually feels great to be good at something um and so uh i sort of stumbled across a similar realization kind of early-ish in or sort of midway in my career and and that has been really powerful is that once you stumble across the thing that you're good at you can then start to apply that thing that you're good at in loads of different veins now so i just found i was good at uh, using mm -hmm. data to create new ideas right and now i've been able to apply that in four or five or six different um environments again and again so it's not like i have a passion for you know conservation or some mm -hmm. enormous lofty topic like that there just happens to be this groove that i that i think i'm better than most people at um and i think everybody can find that thing that they're good at and, and everybody can then find that that route to passion you have to start have to start doing it mm. yeah so uh, i think the last question is we can answer so what books have had a profound and lasting impact on you so any mm. recommendations so the um i mean the classic is uh, thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman Mm -hmm. um, it was like the defining book on behavioral economics, I don't know, 20 years ago, something like that, maybe a bit less. Um, and so he was the first non-economist to win the Nobel Prize for economics with that book. Um, and the, for those of you that haven't heard of it, the premise is like, how do humans make decisions, basically? And uh, the book uses examples of a series of experiments to show how flawed actually our brains are, in, or maybe mm -hmm. not flawed, but how... Um, uh, how complex bits of our brains are and how sometimes we can be thinking one thing and actually deciding another one. And so the, the, what he sets up is this idea of a system one and a system two brain. System one being intuitive um, and sort of instinctive in lots of ways and system two being rational. And what they found was that system two, the rational one, we think we're making an enormous number of our decisions day to day mm -hmm. based on that. But actually, it's an exhausting, highly like cognitively stressing way to think. And therefore, actually, we make the vast majority of our decisions based on system one, this intuitive way of thinking. And so once, you know, that for me was totally mind blowing because mm -hmm. you start not only to um, understand your own decision making process a little bit better and sort of forgive yourself for some of the uh, like weird ways that you make decisions or backward decisions that you make, but it also becomes a lot easier to empathize with other people because you, you realize that they're not always making a, a conscious decision to do X, Y, Z. It's, it's just the way that our brains work. So, so that was really um, kind of transformative for me um, because it just totally rejigged the way I thought about human behavior. And that spans everything mm -hmm. in life. Like, that's the only important thing in life, right? Um, and then I think there's some other, there's some other business ones like, uh, um, the Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, um, who's uh, the Horowitz in Andreessen Horowitz, for anyone who's a sort of VC, VC fan, um, wrote a fabulous, uh, fabulous book uh, yeah. about what it's actually like to not only build startups, but then to run them at scale. Um, and that was, again, really transformational for me because it, it, previously I'd only ever thought about the stage of the business that I was working on right then which is the early stage. And it just opened my eyes a lot to, to the way that what you do in the early stage of the company influences how it operates at scale. And then you can start to weirdly apply the same, uh, the same, the same lessons to uh, young children and the way that mm. that then conditions them to be adults or um, teams and when they, the teams then grow, the way it conditions them later on. So say those two were really transformational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just put those two books link in the chat. So if you guys want to want to really have a look, then you guys can can have a reference. Oh, can I add one more, sir? It's yeah, sure. deep deep, uh, deep work by Cal Newport. Uh, it's a it's a fabulous book. I was sent it by the uh, the CEO of Rainmaking. Uh, actually, before I joined the company, he was he was clearly conditioning me to um, uh, to come into the role. Uh, it's about mm -hmm. how do the most prolific um, academics who make breakthroughs? What is it about? the way that they work that allows them to make breakthroughs. And he found that they, they split their, their time into periods of very deep, very intensive work where they only focus on 
making those breakthroughs and getting really deep. And then they separate out what you call shallow work. So emails and Slack and uh, WhatsApp and all that sort of stuff. And you realize then once you read this, how destructive like, this thing is um, all through the day. And it, and it really changed the way that I then work. So that'd be the third one. That's, yeah, that's really cool. And I, I surely I will have a look as well. And yeah, thanks for your time today. And I think time is running out. And so do you have last few words or lies for the audience, especially like now they are they are looking for their career and and maybe struggling about their their role. So yeah, maybe last few works. I'll do my best. Um <laughs> it's very it's very difficult to um to be particularly helpful, I think, because everybody's individual path mm. is is so different. Um, but it's for exactly that reason that I think the most important thing that anyone can do is start to act, right? And you can always, if you, if you start doing a job and it just doesn't work out, you can always step back from it. But until you start doing, until you put yourself in uncomfortable positions where maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, until you take some risks, basically, um, you just don't learn anything about yourself. And mm. so that would be my main encouragement is prioritize, like an early stage company, prioritize learning over absolutely everything else. Um, and the rewards will then come later on and apply a bunch of hard work and a bit of luck and some good timing and all of that sort of stuff. You will, you will be your own uni unicorn, uh, mm. but only if you invest in the learning early on. That's the best I can do for wisdom, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but that's really cool. And, and I, I, I totally agree with that. When you start the first step, you're in the progress of your goal already. So yeah. Thanks for your time today, and and it's really great to have you and really inspirational sharing for the audience, and and if for, for the audience, if you you want to um uh, stay update of our next sessions and want to learn more, um just follow our social medias, our Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and look forward to see everyone in the next sessions. And thank you everyone, and. Have a good day or good night, as I know everyone from different time zone. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Bye, -bye. Yeah, bye.